Welcome everybody. I'm Mike Sag from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And today with me is Dr. Mark Mulligan, who's the Division Director of Infectious Diseases at NYU and Langone Medical Center in New York. And today's topic is COVID vaccines. Um, this is being brought to you by the IAS USA, the International Antiviral Society USA based in San Francisco. This is one of the continuing in the series of the COVID dialogues. Um, couple points about today's session. It's gonna be about an hour long. It'll be conversational between Dr. Mulligan and me. Uh, we're gonna, our goals is to cover all things COVID vaccine. Uh, Mark and I will speak together for about 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll open it up for questions and have a, a round table. If you have questions, you'll notice at the bottom part of the Zoom screen uh, that there's a Q&A box, just submit the question there and uh, we'll get to as many of those as we can uh, when the time comes. Um, as a special note, uh, the chat feature has been disabled uh, so that we are just using the Q&A boxes for, for dialogue uh, to uh, ask the questions and that keeps everything in one location. An important note, these dialogues, I think are very informative, but they're not CME accredited. So. Um, there won't be any CME available um, for uh, the dialogue itself, but um, there will be web-based and podcast uh, broadcast available um, uh, that can be available for CME, but with the warning that the shelf life, if you will, of COVID information um, goes stale pretty quickly. But I think we're going to cover a lot of basic points that will be real helpful. Uh, so I think without any further ado, we will get started. Um, Dr. Mulligan, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Sag. It is really great to be here, especially with you, my colleague and friend. Yeah, we go back a long way, longer than we'd like to maybe remember. But um, uh, anyway, let's dive into this. Let's. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide this up into a couple topic areas that I think we can roll through pretty quickly. But the first will be about science and then timing of vaccination and safety, and finally immunity. Um, and then uh, maybe if we have time, we'll get to issues about distribution, trust, mistrust, and that type of thing. So let's go. How do these two vaccines that have been approved work? Yeah, you know, it's called messenger RNA, uh, and they're in these lipid nanoparticles. So you can think of copies of RNA of the spike gene uh, that get delivered intramuscularly uh, right there in the deltoid, get taken up into muscle, but also probably importantly into uh, professional antigen uh, presenting cells and, and go to regional lymph nodes. So, you know, we, we do see some, some regional node, node swelling in some of the vaccinees, not many, but some. And there you get uh, induction of an immune response. So the, the RNA goes into the cytoplasm. These lipid nanoparticles get taken up by the cells about the size of a virus. They're 50, 80 nanometers. HIV is about 100 nanometers diameter. And um, once they go inside, the um, RNA is released into the cytosol, the cytoplasm. Very important. Never goes into the nucleus, gets degraded um, within uh, you know, less than a day or so. Mm. And the RNA, messenger RNA, messages the cells. It tells the cells, hey, make this protein, make the spike. And then the spike protein is made it's anchored, um, it's a trimer, very importantly, anchored in the membrane. 
It has a, a two proline mutations that stabilize the pre-fusion configuration, locks it in. Very important information that was available, you know, when this design, this vaccine was designed based on earlier work that had been done with uh, MERS and with RSV. And then that endogenous, this is the key, that endogenous synthesis of the vaccine protein right in the body, asking the body to be the factory to make the virus uh, protein, the spike vaccine protein, you get uh, a more natural immune uh, response, balanced. You get CD4, CD8, B cell antibody, and a, a very potent response. So when you're saying a couple quick follow-ups, when you say cells, you mean the muscle cells? Well, yeah, I think muscle cells are part of it, but also, Mike, I do think that there's uptake into the macrophages and to uh, dendritic cells that then and travel to the regional lymph nodes. And in that very rich milieu, you get uh, presentation to T cells and B cells and, and get a strong response. Yeah. Any adjuvant? Uh, these are considered self-adjuvanting. Uh, RNA binds to TLR7 and 8 um, and trigger an innate response. These, vex, these RNAs uh, in, uh, have been tinkered with a bit. There are a lot of um, changes to the, the sequence that are uh, uh, synonymous, but that reduce a little bit that TLR7-8 triggering. But there still is, perhaps through the lipid nanoparticles and what they're doing, there's still a fair amount of triggering of an innate response. So there's no adjuvant, but they're self-adjuvanting. And that probably relates to safety, I would imagine, because some of the reactions of other vaccines are to the, the marisol or the other adjuvants that are used to stimulate the immune system, right? That is true, yeah. So the tolerability of the vaccines um, uh, relates to the strength of often of that immediate innate adjuvant-induced response. And uh, sometimes that can be too strong. But in this case, I think we tried to pick it, you know, the middle ground, the sweet spot between tolerability um, and induction of a strong neutralizing antibody response. And I, and I think for each vaccine, it's interesting, the two vaccines, one of them is using a 30 microgram level a dose of RNA. The other uses 100 micrograms. But that's what worked. And they're a little different in terms of the lipid uh, coating of the RNA. So uh, it's what works and it's what to what's tolerated and induces obviously a very effective response. So these lipid nanoparticles don't require a receptor. They just fuse with the cell membrane, right? They, yeah, they get taken up through endocytosis and fuse with membranes and release the contents, the RNA into yeah. the cytoplasm. Okay. Um, and we've, we've seen the data, I think most of us, but just briefly, uh, what it looked like in looking at the curves is that in the placebo group in both studies, and you were leading the Pfizer study, um, that the placebo group just kind of had a trajectory. It was pretty linear. It just kind of went up. But the vaccine group continued in the same path till about day 12 or 13. And then it just flattened out. There were some cases, it seems like, that happened after day 13. This is after the first dose, before the booster, right? And it just stayed flat. Um, what did you think when you saw those results for the first time? I, I just thought that this is truly amazing, um, more than we hoped for. It was a very, it was very exciting to look at those curves separate right there where you said around day 12, 13. And you know, I, I think that um, I've heard Dr. Fauci say, hey, we'd have been very happy with 70% to get 95% protection. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. amazing. I remember back in the day with HIV when 
we were working with viral load and you were you were at UAB at the time I think you were probably a fellow and uh, or maybe just on faculty and the uh, we started working with viral load quantitative viral load for the first time and when those data came out I'll never forget that moment uh, it's almost like it was made up in a dry lab somewhere and just <laughs> almost too good to be true right yeah yeah that you know I've heard it said and I've only had this experience a few times in my career that science is really um, um, a few moments of sheer exhilaration <laughs> that punctuate an awful lot of hard work. Yeah. And, and this was one of those moments and your moment there was another. Yeah, well, let's let's take that that 12 day, 13 day issue. And um, yeah. uh, Bob, Bob Walker and um, a colleague from Harvard wrote an editorial in Washington Post this weekend about the notion of prolonging or, or waiting for the second dose and with the notion you could maybe wait two or three months uh, because that initial uh, benefit starts to accrue at day 12 or 13. And their theory is, and they're probably right, I would guess, is that the second dose is really mostly for a booster effect or longevity and maybe not so critical for protection maybe in the first couple months. What are your, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I think that uh, what we see at day 12 or 13 reflects what happened six days earlier. So really probably because remember the incubation period. So you're starting to protect probably, it's pretty amazing, uh, a week after vaccination. So very, very interesting that that's happening. And, and the mechanism of that, you know, I'm not sure, it seems a bit early for an adaptive response. Is there something innate going on there that's providing early protection, then the adaptive, the antibody T cell kicks in. But in any event, um, for, for Pfizer, it's about 50% uh, up through day 21 when the second dose was given. And for Moderna, it's about 80, uh, it's 52% Pfizer, about 80 for Moderna. Um, uh, the data are, are cut a little differently. They're, I mean, they're, they're not exact same analyses. So I think you can't, you shouldn't really compare 52 and 80, but let's just say somewhere 50 to 80%, one shot providing protection for at least out through day 21 or day 28, the second dose. Right. So does how so coming back to the question, then how important is it for that second dose to happen within a month, or could it be delayed without much loss of efficacy? I know it's hypothetical, but do you right. have a guess? Yeah, my guess is that um, if, you know we get to partial protection with one dose. You got to have the second dose to get to that ninety-five percent. And I think you're right. Oftentimes, the boost not only pushes you to a higher level of efficacy, but also gives you better duration. We don't have any information. I think that you know what was studied, Mike, and what was licensed or, or what was granted in EUA, which is not the same as licensure, uh, was the two-dose regimen here in the U.S. And I think that um, the, you know the U.K. they they actually have some data that support longer intervals uh, with the AstraZeneca vaccine. They extended that to um, the Pfizer vaccine, which yeah. there there really aren't any data for. So. Um, we just don't have the data for Pfizer. You know, probably it would work. It's a strategy that I don't think we're going to adopt in the U.S. I've heard some of our leaders like Dr. Fauci say, no, we're, we're sticking with what we know works. And I think probably that's the right thing. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you in the sense that our problem right now is more logistics and getting it out and getting it into people's arms. And if we really focus on that and make that happen, then I think we can probably keep the schedule as it is. Uh, switching over, you mentioned AstraZeneca briefly. What is that? What is describe that vaccine and how is it different? Sure. So we you've got multiple platforms. We've been talking about RNA, Pfizer, Moderna. 
So now let's talk about non-replicating viral vector adenovirus. Interestingly, um, this is a chimp ad. So it's different than the ad five that a lot of the HIV folks remember uh, that we, we used it for HIV years ago. So it's a, it's a serotype of adeno that may, few humans have ever seen. And there's little cross reactivity to. Two dose regimen, a month apart, and phase three trial ongoing, we're participating. Got about another week of enrollment in the US where we're over 30,000 enrolled. We're, we're finishing up with some enrollment to try to increase the numbers of uh, uh, minority participants. So we're gonna over enroll a bit for a week or two. Um, but it's a, a vaccine that we know is efficacious from data in Brazil and UK. And in fact, I think everybody on the call probably knows last week, UK licensed it or made it available through in the EUA again, or some whatever their equivalent of the EUA is. So it's now being deployed this week um, as an approved vaccine um, in UK. The, the, the protection level uh, depends which data set you look at. It's between 62 and 90%. If you average it out, roughly 70%. We have a bit more to learn. There were some um, uh, unique aspects of the trials that were done in UK. Um, and uh, our US trial will be done you know, with a very high level NIH quality, rigorous work. And we're gonna get to the truth about where it is, but I am confident that it is an effective vaccine and will we'll, you know, we'll almost certainly be uh, achieve its EUA probably in February. Yeah, and you're thinking your best guess is maybe closer to the 90% efficacy if, if you had to put a nickel down? My guess, if I, you know, it's hard to say. I, I just, it, if I had to put a nickel down, Mike, let's just throw out 80 ish. All right, know. okay. I'm not going to hold you to it. Um, <laughs> and what about safety um, for AstraZeneca? Yeah. Uh, say, yeah, this, this is on people's minds. Um, so, you, you know, we have to re rewind a bit and remember. These recombinant uh, viral vectors have been around, non-replicating, they don't multiply in the body. It's a common cold virus, um, been around for years, decades. Outstanding safety profiles. Um, and there was a pause in the US trial for nearly two months uh, based on some neurologic uh, uh, unexpected adverse events in, in UK, um, transverse myelitis uh, in one case. Um, and it's not clear whether that's related to the vaccine or not. You know, it's kind of one of those things that you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We've got a vaccine that's effective. Um, you know, life happens during vaccine trials. When you enroll 40,000, 45,000 people in the Pfizer trial, people are going to have strokes. Um, a few people are going to develop autoimmune conditions, et cetera. And you really have to look for patterns, um, uh, biological plausibility relationship to vaccine, et cetera. And we just, we, we, uh, to answer your question, I think it's a safe vaccine and we don't have any reason to, to, to not think that at this point. And real quickly, just to fill out the blank, I'm gonna move on to J&J &J in a second, but that, that this is a chimp adeno and the concern with the human adeno is that some of us who have had that adeno before, if we had had it, then the immunity sometimes isn't quite as robust when, it, when you're responding, this, it gets knocked off too quick, right? We exactly, saw that in yeah. HIV trials. Right, we call that pre-existing immunity. It dampens the take of the vaccination. You don't get a good take because you, yeah. you, you, you knock it down. Which is why we're using the chimp in this one yeah. for masters. And then finally, the J&J &J vaccine, I understand that's a one dose, one shot. Yeah, uh, 
approach? It is. Uh, they're, they're studying a two-dose regimen as well um, elsewhere in the world, but they've now got uh, some 45,000 people enrolled. They've closed enrollment. That will likely be uh, the next one, Mike, to come to uh, an EUA, perhaps in late January, early February. So they're fully enrolled, um, single dose regimen, again, non-replicating common cold virus, adenovirus, again, a relatively rare serotype, in this case, ADD26. Um, so we get away from that problem of pre-existing immunity. Um, they are, they are looking sorry, at a two-dose regimen. That's a, that's a human ADD26. That one's a human one, yeah. But it, it is a fairly rare one that, that very relatively few of us have any cross-reactivity or reactivity to. Uh, so yeah, fully accrued and now in follow-up. Remember to, to go for an EUA, there are three things you have to have. You have to have an, a median of two months of follow-up post-second dose for safety. You have to have your efficacy data have, 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 uh, have met the numbers needed there roughly 75, uh, uh, I'm sorry, 150 infections, and you have to have the manufacturing data. They're gonna get there probably uh, late this month and, and put their package together. Great. Let's move on just a couple of common questions that I'm hearing about who should get it and when. I think we've seen the rollout. That seems pretty reasonable that the healthcare workers and nursing home folks and uh, other high-risk folks get it first, and then it'll go to the older population and, and onward. Um, some criticism has been about uh, HIV-infected patients not being included in studies. Uh, is that conquered now? And would you recommend this vaccine when it becomes available for people with HIV? Yeah, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that we, we did have participation, uh, but in the case of uh, um, Pfizer, it was through an amendment. They weren't in, involved from the beginning. In AstraZeneca, for example, they are involved from the beginning. So well-controlled HIV, you can participate in these phase three trials. We had about 150 to 200 in each of the trials for Pfizer and Moderna. And they, they, they tracked like the other participants. Yeah, but the numbers are so small, you can't break them out and say anything in terms of efficacy. But for example, in the Moderna trial, there was one infection out of their 170 roughly HIV participants. At the time, the data cut was made to, to go to the EUA. It was in the placebo group. Yeah. Um, so 100% efficacy, but of course you can't- Small numbers. Yeah, you can't say anything. And then, um, you know, Here's, here's where we are. Um, it's a very safe vaccine. It's not a live viral vaccine, the kind that is sometimes not given to HIV infected individuals who are significantly immunosuppressed, um, you know, well under 200 or maybe to pregnant women. This is a, a very safe vaccine. So we don't have data about safety and efficacy in large numbers. We know in a few hundred HIV patients, very safe, no problem. And those are well controlled. So probably generally CD4 200 higher virus controlled um, on stable therapy. But um, I don't think there's a reason to think there, there'd be a safety issue. I think it's very reasonable. And this is what CDC has said for HIV patients. Um, they've been studied if they're well-controlled, and even for those not well-controlled, for immunosuppressed individuals, what's being recommended by CDC and others is that there's no reason to think there would be a particular problem. Just to understand, we don't yet have the data, but it can be given. We don't yet have the data for safety and efficacy in those groups. That'll probably come soon in follow-on studies. And in the interest of time, I'll just list a bunch of other 
categories of individuals that I think also this applies to because you nicely just described the difference between a live vaccine and a, for example, an mRNA vaccine, very different in terms of risk, but pregnant women, breastfeeding women, um, people who have got other kind of immunocompromised disorders, in my view, which is worse, the, the unknown hypothetical risk of a reaction versus getting COVID. And especially people we're noticing who are on um, uh, CD20 inhibitors uh, like rituximab, uh, those folks are not doing well with the disease and be much better to try to protect them if we can. How well the vaccine works in that setting with B cell inhibition it remains to be seen, but I don't, I can't imagine that that is going to be worse than the infection itself. Yeah, again, it's theoretical. Any any um, uh, uh, side effect or risk, um, we we excluded people with immunosuppression from the trials. Um, we did have you know a couple hundred pregnancies in the trials during the trial, and those people will be those uh, people will be followed. The the guidance is that um, a pregnant uh, person or a breastfeeding person. Um, can make the decision that they want to make. It's okay. They can take the vaccine. We know that uh, there's higher risk for complications in, in pregnant people and, and for their fetuses. So it's who a get, very reasonable get thing. Who get COVID. Yeah, with COVID. Sorry, yeah. with COVID. Higher risk with COVID. And the same answer for those other immunosuppressed groups you're talking about, people on uh, the CD20 inhibitors and, and uh, other immunosuppressives. We don't yet have the data and the and when there's not evidence, we go to you know well, what's the expert opinion? What's likely? What's the risk? You you, you balance the risk and the benefit, and you that's where you started. The risk is higher in these individuals, and 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 so the benefit is likely to be greater. Uh, the I'm sorry, the risk of COVID-19 infection right. is higher, and the benefit of the vaccine is likely to be greater. Any risk from the vaccine is is purely theoretical. Now it's a very safe vaccine. Yeah. Well, let's move to another special population of sorts, and that is the 20 million of our friends and neighbors who have had COVID. Um, and the studies, as I understand it, um, excluded people if they had known COVID disease, but they, a lot of people had antibody, not a lot, 2% or so. Um, what can you tell me about recommendations for people who have had COVID um, yeah. What's the, what's the safety profile look like and what's the recommendation for when the timing of the vaccination? Yeah, so several hundred people did get into the trials. They didn't have known COVID. You know, they were probably those folks that couldn't get tested back in the spring. Testing wasn't available or they had asymptomatic infection, which CDC says maybe 40% of infections are asymptomatic. Um, and they were enrolled, vaccinated later, uh, nucleocapsid, nucleoprotein antibodies were uh, looked for, and that's how they defined people that had pre-existing infection that they didn't know about. And those folks did fine in terms of safety. There was no difference. And in, in terms of efficacy, there was an efficacy signal that was similar in those folks. So um, the guidance is that uh, people that have previously had COVID should take the vaccine. Um, uh, there's no reason not to. Um, when to do it is another question we're getting a lot, Mike, and it really depends on uh, when the COVID was. If it's in the remote past, go ahead and get it. There's some thought that in your first few months after COVID, you'll have a level of immunity um, that maybe you could, you know, maybe this is altruistic or maybe you'll get a better take if you wait a little bit longer. Um, certainly, uh, one clear guidance is um, if you have acute COVID and are still symptomatic, you shouldn't take the vaccine. My 
I, what I've been saying is that, you know, yeah, you could wait up to three months as has been suggested, but um, if you don't want to wait that long, you know, I think waiting a month or so post-symptom resolution is, is fine. And then you'll get a nice boost, I believe. And whatever our concern is, and you know, we're still learning for waning immunity, it's clear you can have a second infection, but um, immunity is going to wane eventually based on what we know from other uh, coronaviruses. Um, then we can take that out of the picture. Yeah. Well, speaking as an N of one, as everyone I think knows that I had COVID back in March of 2020, and I got my vaccination about uh, two and a half weeks ago. And my reaction was basically like having COVID over again, not the respiratory part, but the fever, muscle aches, chills, all that. So I'm pretty confident my immune system recognized this guy and reacted. It only lasted a day. It was miserable, but it wasn't horrible. Yeah. Um, and it, got, it just has gone away and I feel fine. The question for me is, should I get that second booster shot? I'm kind of thinking maybe postpone for a little while. I think I've got pretty good immunity, but we need more data on this. And, and I do have blood mm -hmm. that's been drawn uh, to sort of look at my antibody levels before yeah. and after. That's actually um, another way we might be able to save vaccine. If, if we can get these data that show, yeah, if you've had it before, you only need a single shot, but you'll that, get a nice, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I like that. Yeah. Well, one of the things also that we're, we're talking about that, you know, you don't have a crystal ball anymore, I guess, than anybody, but um, what's your best guess about the longevity in terms of the yeah. slope of the immune response that you've seen, at least in the first two or three months, when right. might people need another booster? Yeah. Um, there was a nice uh, small like letter paper in the New England Journal two, three weeks ago from Moderna showing from their phase one participants. So now we're far enough out to have three months of uh, neutralizing antibody data post second vaccination. And at three months, it's still very robust. There's a little drift down. Just looking at that, and of course, not knowing, well, where's the threshold? Where do you, where do you cross the line where you, you know, you're not protected? And again, circulating antibodies, not the whole story. Uh, uh, memory T cells, memory B cells uh, will kick in as well. But um, my guess is that uh, we're going to, be out close to a year would be, you know, if not longer, uh, just looking at that. Um, I think that we don't know the correlative protection yet. So this is all just hand waving, but um, it looks to me like three months after two doses of, of the vaccine, uh, we've still got a high level of neutralizing antibody. Yeah, I think you're right. It's going to be longer than, than I think, uh, it might, hopefully it'll be long enough so that the herd immunity can kick in and, um, and we'll start to get rid of this guy. And so we don't have to deal with them anymore. That would be good. Um, speaking of the sort of mechanism and how it might relate to epidemiology is, um, it seems like what happens with this uh, vaccine, assuming somebody's never had COVID before, is that they get an immune response that should they get exposed to the virus down the road, they certainly don't get symptomatic disease, or at least not much of any symptomatic disease. But the question is, are they transiently infected? Probably so. And during that time, is there any evidence of shed where they might be at risk to another person who hasn't been vaccinated yet, who's not had COVID? Right. Yeah. Um, so if we sketch the whole spectrum, profound protection against severe disease. Um, and then 95, I mean, I'm talking over 95%, it's impressive. And, and, and then uh, against symptomatic laboratory confirmed COVID, 
excuse me, 95% protection, you know, very strong. And we will get the answer to the asymptomatic infection, which is what you're talking about. Somebody who might be infected and able to spread the virus, would that happen? Does this vaccine protect against uh, carriage or, or asymptomatic infection? And uh, we just don't have that answer yet. Again, with those uh, uh, nucleocapsid antibodies, we can look for people in the trial who were negative to uh, nucleoprotein antibodies at the beginning and then have it later because the nucleoprotein is not in the vaccine. So if they develop antibodies to that during the trial, they got infected. And if they never reported any symptoms, that's asymptomatic infection. And so then we hope again to see a lot more of that in the placebo group than we see in the vaccine group. And those data are, are pro somebody probably knows that right now, Mike, because you know they, they've yeah. got a lot of data to go through. But I think we'll hear about that. My guess would be sometime relatively soon. I hope. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, another thing in the news the last two to three weeks has been this uh, variant uh, that was originally described in London and South Africa, recently in Colorado, California, in the U.S. Probably everywhere. I would guess by now that's more infectious than the parent uh, wild type virus. Uh, but, but according to the data I've read um, that these mutations, which are pretty well characterized, um, are, do not sort of overlap with the antibody produced by the, um, by the uh, vaccine and therefore the vaccine should still work against that variant. Is that accurate? Yeah, the way I like to talk about this is that these, these guys like HIV, they're RNA viruses and they, they're professionals at mutating. And um, with, with one of the RNA vaccines, uh, they looked at 15 of the variants. This was in a paper published in, in Nature. And um, all 15 were covered equally well to the, 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 the canonical strain, the original strain from Washington State in the US. So all the variants that had been studied in that, in that paper were covered. My guess is, and I think most people feel this is probably true here as well, that the vaccine will cover these variants. There's no evidence that the UK variant is causing worse disease. Um, we will have some answers soon about vaccine uh, protection against it. Um, the, the evidence for increased transmissibility is based on modeling. And I think I'm beginning to hear some whispers from a few different labs that, that uh, you know, that they're seeing some biological evidence of more rapid uh, spread or more avidity binding the ACE2 molecule, the viral receptor. I think we're gonna see some of the biological explanation for this purported and probably true increased transmissibility. Still a possibility if, you know, if, if, if none of that were true, that it's just human behavior leading to more spread of, of, a, of a variant that just has sort of gotten seeded and now with cold weather and gathering for holidays. But I think, I think most likely, you know, based on what I'm hearing, that there's there's something to it. Mm. Uh, but masks and everything else we're supposed to be doing will be equally effective against yeah. it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, you know, if we put this whole conversation together, and I'm about ready to move into the QA because we've got a fair number of questions, over 30 that have built up, um, is that uh, even when you get the vaccine, you still want to wear a mask. You still want to. Yeah maintained all the rules. Uh, you, you will have, I'll speak from firsthand, uh, after having COVID originally in March by April, May, when I was going out and seeing patients again, I did kind of feel like I was a little bit protected. I still use PPE, but it was different, I think, than some of my colleagues. So I think the vaccine 
recipients were going to feel the same way, but really yeah. important to continue that, right? Yeah, that's what I, yeah, absolutely. We've got to keep wearing the masks, social distancing, hand washing. What, what I'm hearing from people is, is that same thing, just a little bit of a security, personal security feeling, but they're not going to throw away the mask. What we need to do uh, is get to herd immunity. And nobody knows what that number is. You know, we're still not really sure what the R naught is for this virus, but we thought it was maybe three or four, now maybe it's five or six. So we were talking about 70, 75% level of herd immunity. Now there's some talk about 85 uh, or even a little higher. And uh, which would mean, you know, we got to go a little deeper and further with the vaccine. So when we get to that, then the pandemic stops. Uh, right. and, and, you know. So for some of the folks who haven't kept up, but are not means the probability of one infection infecting another person or two. And you want that value less than one to stop an epidemic. And the higher it is above one, then that just means it's much more infectious and more people. Right. Once it gets transmitted, uh, it's going to, it's like a, uh, sort of a nuclear reactor approach where it just keeps exploding. Yeah, the world champion is measles. Uh, yeah. 12 to 18 secondary cases for each primary case in a fully susceptible population. And, and their uh, herd immunity requires over 95% of people vaccinated. The yeah, formula so we'll be... is one minus one over R naught. And uh, we, you know, our guess here is somewhere between 75 and 80, 85, we'll see. Yeah, and, and so I'll finish up my questioning. We'll go to the questions with this point that, um, you know, I think a lot of us to get to that herd immunity, a lot of us are concerned about the acceptability of the yeah. vaccine. And uh, what, are, what are your thoughts on that in terms of the uptake? Well, it, it's uptake, it's, and it's also the, the distribution and allocation. So vaccines don't save lives, vaccinations do. That's my friend, Walt Orenstein. Uh, who's one of my heroes, and it's so true. So we got to get these things into people's arms. So it's it's the distribution, but then it's also trust, um, particularly the communities most affected by COVID, where there are many reasons for uh, historical and ongoing continuing uh, distrust of, of government, of science, uh, based on some things that have been done and maybe a lack of participation. I am glad that up to uh, 40% of participants are, are minorities in the trials. Um, so that's, that's a good thing. Um, and we can go to the communities and say, hey, this has been studied. It's equally safe and protective in, in Hispanics and African-Americans based on the data in the trials. But we've got to uh, invest in these communities because we're going to need participation from the communities most affected, the, the, you know, the essential workers, the, the bus drivers, you know, uh, all of all the folks that are um, uh, uh, most at risk, and so they have uh, they have participated in the trials. We've got to get the word out, and uh, it's a equally important job to the distribution is the education piece now. And I just would say to the I can't I don't have my glasses to the uh, 399 people. <laughs> I would like to ask you all to be vaccine ambassadors, and I think you probably already are and get the word out about the safety and the importance of achieving herd immunity. Yeah, it's great. And I've noticed just anecdotally in the last three weeks even, uh, as the vaccine has rolled out, I've seen a shift in the desire of a lot of people. A lot of people saying, I'm not gonna get it or I'll wait and see. Well, now that it's rolling out and especially so many healthcare workers who are in the know about the science, a lot of the national leaders have rolled up their sleeve literally 
and now I see my phone's blowing up. I'm sure yours is as well. Like, how can I get it? When can I get it? My family member X, Y, Z. So I think that's it. So let's move on to questions. Um, the first couple of the original questions we've already addressed in terms of differences between vaccines. Uh, but this is from Elizabeth Sherman. Um, it said, just basically saying HIV patients are asking her, um, should they get the vaccine? I think you've addressed this, but it seems like the answer is yes, right? Yeah, I think... Uh... There's no reason to think there'll be more of a safety problem. It's a very safe vaccine. We don't have uh, efficacy evidence because the numbers were small, but in a few hundred people in the phase three trials, safe, tolerated, no reason not to have a discussion and, and consider getting it. We don't know if they'll respond as well if they have deeper immunosuppression, but uh, particularly those that uh, are well controlled, we would expect that maybe like many other vaccines, they'll get a response. Yeah, this is from Sojanya Kar Ken Yuri, uh, are you seeing neurological effects? We talked about the we talked about the transverse myelitis. We there's been some Bell's palsy, but it seemed to be balanced between the groups, maybe a little bit more. And then the notion of somebody who's had Guillain Barre, uh, should they get the vaccine? What do you think? Right. Yeah. So uh, there's not been any Guillain Barre seen with any of the vaccines. So that's that's good news. Um, and, and in fact, in general, Guillain-Barre is not considered as uh, either a contraindication or a precaution to any vaccine. Same thing here. Um, uh, so I think that um, that's a decision they can make. Some people that have had it are a little bit nervous about getting vaccines just because of uh, some of the things that are out there. But uh, I think it can be done. We're not seeing other neurologic problems um, uh, you know, that are any different. Mike, you mentioned the Bell's palsy. What uh, FDA and CDC have said is it seems to be roughly at about the background level in the population um, uh, in general. And then we've already addressed the transverse myelitis with AZ, but really very, uh, very clean safety data. Yeah, just one, and that's not clearly uh, linked. So Jonathan Rosenthal asks, um, uh, what about potential unforeseen side effects from the new mRNA vaccine? First, for example, uh, emergence of autoimmune disease that might be triggered by this and that type of thing? Well, Jonathan's question is great because the trials for Moderna and Pfizer combined 75,000. Now we've got over 3 million you know, people in the US alone. So we're gonna learn some things. This is a time for humility, modesty. You know, I mean, I hate to say it, but COVID has defeated us um, repeatedly. And, and um, I think we need to be humble with the vaccines as well and say, we'll probably learn a few new things. We always do when you roll out from clinical trial where we study efficacy to the, the, the community where we study uh, effectiveness. And um, uh, you know that I think that's what I'd have to say. We're gonna learn a few things. I, he asked a specific, I forgot what it was, Mike. Well, it was just about, will there be autoimmune diseases? Oh, we, I, yeah, yeah, I wanted to just say, so, Immunosuppressed participants were, immunosuppressed individuals were not allowed in the trials, but autoimmune conditions were, and we did not see any. So if you were, if you had an autoimmune condition, but you weren't on immunosuppressives, you could be in the trial. There were, there were several hundred enrolled. There was no, you know, one of the concerns about adjuvants and self-adjuvanting vaccines might be, are you going to trigger an autoimmune, it, it, turn on the immune response against whatever the these cross-reactive molecular mimicry epitopes are nothing like that was seen in you know with this relatively small data set. So, uh, Jonathan, um, I would say stay tuned, but I don't expect that we're going to see autoimmunity. Yeah, Nadia uh, Karishi 
uh, asks, how many times uh, will the spike protein be made before the mRNA gets? Do you have any sense of the burst size of spike yeah. protein? You know, I, I wish I had an answer for that. I don't really. I, the way I think of it is that the, the, um, the lipid particle goes into the cell, the RNA is released, you start making, and, uh, and then pretty quickly, RNA is degraded. We know RNA is very sensitive and it gets degraded quickly. The total amount of, of protein made, remember it's a spike trimer, it goes to the uh, plasma membrane and stays there. My guess is it's a few micrograms at most. It might only actually be nanogram level, um, but because you've got such a strong adjuvanting effect going on, you're getting a really, really good response. So remember a flu shot, each of the three components are 15 micrograms each. I think this is just a fraction of that being made, but because it's a strong response. Uh, and again, the RNA probably is made for a matter of hours or a day or so, makes the protein just for hours or a day or so, and then you're done. But I, don't, I can't put a number on it. Yeah, I think the backhand way we know that the mRNA doesn't hang around is all the extremes we have to go to to ship the thing, right? The minus 80. That's because it'll degrade and, and won't, won't be available for use. Which is one of the reasons the AZ vaccine is so important because it can go in a fridge and it's also very cheap. So it's a vaccine for the whole world that will be easier just as a, an aside. Yeah. James Sunstra asks, um, why is a stabilization with proline needed? Yeah, we want to lock in the pre-fusion configuration. So after the virus attaches uh, it, with its spike protein to the ACE2 molecule, the conformation changes. You don't want to make antibodies to the, uh, to the spike um, post-attachment or if it somehow triggers and goes into the post-fusion, post-attachment configuration. So we lock it into the circulating free virion particle configuration with those two prolines. And you make, you, you induce the immune response to that. Now you're ready to go attack free virus. Okay, Lorraine Tassilio, um asks, is there a diagram to explain how mRNA attachment and entry, yeah, maybe you just use your hands, cell, <laughs> hand, Yeah, uh, yeah I, you know, I, I do think, well, I think it's, I think of it as linear actually. So you, um, you have um, RNA, that's the message. And you tell, you go into the cell and you tell the cell, make the protein. So RNA, protein, and then the protein, triggers an immune response, then immune response. That's the third thing. And then fourth thing, protection. So message through the RNA, make the vaccine spike protein in the body, make the immune response and then protection. One, two, three, four. And if you wanna take it to the adenovirus vectors, back up just one step. Those are DNA viruses. You're, you've got the, the uh, spike DNA snuck into the, this non-replicating adenovirus genome. So you go DNA, RNA, protein, immune response protection. You have one extra step. And that's regular transcription. And that takes place in the cytoplasm. Again, it doesn't seem to need to go to the nucleus to make all that happen. Right, no danger of integration. The, the RNA never, uh, never makes it into the uh, nucleus. And, and um, we, we don't have any reason to, to feel that this is gonna get reverse transcribed into DNA. Okay. Uh, Gabe Teferi asks about uh, polyethylene glycol. Is that in the vaccine and what does it do? Yeah, so the, the, uh, there are f at least four different lipids uh, and some other chemicals in the, in the um, um, lipid nanoparticles. So yeah, the vaccine's got the RNA and then the, the, this lipid coating. 
And um, there, there is polyethylene glycol there and polysorbate uh, is something that is somehow related. So this question has to do with um, the uh, allergic reactions, Mike. If you have a known anaphylactic reaction, this is a contraindication, a known anaphylactic reaction to polyethylene glycol, PEG, which many people will know, um, um, uh, or to polysorbate, uh, or to or to prior, you know, a first dose of, of a COVID vac RNA vaccine, you should not take the COVID vaccine. These are very rare. Um, um, so the, with regard to the anaphylaxis, people with anaphylaxis can take the vaccine, maybe bring, maybe bring your EpiPen. And of course we give the vaccine in um, secure places where people have epinephrine, where they know how to handle airways. We watch people with uh, a history of anaphylaxis longer, 30 minutes rather than 15. Um, and uh, you know, remember 3 million doses now in the US and we've had a handful, but this is really important. Vaccinations in the US, about one in a million or a few in a million result in anaphylaxis, all vaccinations. It just happens. It's a known complication of vaccination. I'm not convinced this is anything different than what we see with all the other vaccines. You know, we've seen a, a few and we've given 3 million doses now. Yeah, I, I think of Peg as a song by Steely Dan on the Asia album, I'm just saying. Marguerite <laughs> Owens wants to know, is there any studies that include end-stage renal disease? Yeah, no, unfortunately we didn't. Uh, that, that was, uh, we excluded people with severe uh, chronic disease, mild or moderate, well-controlled chronic disease. And, and so that was an exclusion. Um, I think that's, that needs to be done, but it hasn't been done yet. Jill Cowper's asking about Moderna dose being halved for the younger populations because their immune system response is going to be stronger. Uh, is that something you think we might be moving forward with to get more uh, vaccine available? There is some talk for, for children about studying a, a half dose. Um, and um, there, there are pediatric trials underway. Remember the Pfizer vaccines lice or has an EUA for certain children, 16 and 17 year olds. It's being studied in 12 to 15 and trials as young as five are planned for all of the vaccines. Um, uh, I think if this question had to do with adult half dosing, it may be coming in part from uh, AstraZeneca, um, but uh, also that um, you know, there, there is a pretty decent immune response even to lower doses of the RNA uh, in younger adults. That's true. And maybe, I, I think maybe that's the question. Older adults, you had to use the doses that were licensed, um, but um, Right now, that's not being planned, that's complicated. Listen, when you're talking about vaccinating 330 Americans, if, if that many want the vaccine, um, the more curly cues you put into the plan, you know, you gotta make this simple. Um, yeah, so I agree. something that could be addressed, but it, it, it might be too complicated. Sarah Miller's asking about those over the age of 65, and when you slice and dice the data, Pfizer seemed to have 93% efficacy in that population, Moderna 86. Is there a difference? Does it matter? Yeah. Uh, I don't think we, we should look at, look at it that way. My, my view is that we had pretty good participation from older adults, about a quarter, um, and uh, uh, both vaccines were highly effective. There's a little a little uh, degradation. The immune responses, if you look, the anti neutralizing antibodies, they're a little bit less, but both vaccines are highly effective in older adults. Mike, what I'm telling people is take whatever you can get because you don't know, you know, with these supply problems, yeah. you know, let's don't well, be picky. They're both, they're both 90 plus percent, even in, yeah. you know, or thereabouts, even in older adults. 
Well, that gets to a question by Richard Halbrick, um, who's asking about if you get an mRNA va vaccine first, can you follow it up with AstraZeneca second or, yeah. or Pfizer versus Moderna? Yeah. I'd recommend yeah. it, but what do you think? Yeah. Um, not recommended. You're right. Uh, the U.S. guidelines are to take the same vaccine. Uh, uh, that, you know, here we have just uh, Pfizer and Moderna. So if you started, just because it hasn't been studied, um, and that's a standard recommendation from uh, the health agencies. Um, sometimes these things have been studied. You know, people move around. They may live in an area where there's Moderna, then they move, and now there's Pfizer. So maybe it's going to happen some, and it might eventually be shown to be okay. We've, we've studied this actually with certain pediatric vaccines uh, uh, where you took the HPV vaccine from one group and then you tried it from the other group and uh, it turned out pretty well there. Um, the, the half, yeah, I'll leave it there. Yeah. Okay, so, and you're right, that's, that's another curly cue. I like that term. Uh, questions yeah. are, are really great here. Another one from Melissa Weiner um, asking about uh, uncontrolled HIV patients. I think what we want to do is get them on antiretroviral therapy, but assuming uh, we're, we're trying to protect them against COVID, yeah. no data on that? Yeah, no, they weren't studied. Uh, the, the, the recommendation there would be that they're immunosuppressed. You can have the discussion. It's not contraindicated, likely to be safe. We don't have the evidence to support safety and efficacy, but certainly can be done. But it does give me a chance again to make a plea for uh, cocooning, herd immunity, the, the family around uh, people that are in all likelihood not as likely to respond quite as well because of their immunosuppression. Really important that everybody in the family, everybody around them yeah. get the vaccine when they can. I know that probably many of those family members can't get it right now, but this is what we talk about with um, uh, pertussis, for example. You know, when babies are under six months, they, there's no way they can get protected from vaccines. Uh, and so we've got to vaccinate the whole family. Herd vaccination of the yeah. local herd. Cocooning, oh. cocooning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, uh, Peter uh, Kadlesic has a question that I was going to ask but ran out of time, and that is the ethical concerns, considerations of continuing, for example, the Pfizer study, the data are known, yet the placebo group continues um, yeah. for a while. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, this is something that is taking up a lot of my day right now. We're unblinding people in, in, in both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca trial who um, um, would like to be unblinded, who are being offered the vaccine. So a lot of doctors and nurses at, at my institution were in these trials. They're now being offered to get one of the vaccines and they need to know. The trials have been amended to allow us to do this and we're doing it. Um, so we're, we're we're doing the right thing for our current participants. What is also gonna become very important will be, uh, um, uh, what about people that aren't in, in the first several levels? They're not 1A, 1B, 1C. Can they be unblinded? And uh, just recently Pfizer has switched and now is gonna use the same approach that Moderna is, that vaccine will be made available within the next couple of months to pretty much everybody in the trial. So yeah. who would like, some people may choose to stay blinded. I've had one, person tell me they wanted to stay blinded. Of course, that person had very strong reactions to both shots. So I think <laughs> that individual knows what they got. Um, the trickier thing, I think all of that is kind of a no brainer. You got to do the right thing and take care of people. 
Um, we, admittedly, we're going to lose our ability to for long term a, a lot of our ability for long term safety and efficacy. But well, you know, you can't you can't withhold from people that need to be protected now that we know it protects. What'll probably happen with future trials like the um, uh, we didn't get to this yet, and maybe we're going to the the protein platforms. Um, so the um, Sanofi. Uh, uh, trial uh, that will be starting in February with a lot of other sites, it may well be that design is going to have to include not a placebo comparison group, but actually an not active very ordered. Yeah, not so very the, the designs are going to probably have to change. I think it, I think it will for sure. Um, we have about 10 minutes left, so we'll make quick questions and answers here. The uh, Thomas uh, Motto asks about solid organ transplant recipients. Yeah, um, not studied. They were excluded, and trials will be coming for many of these these immunosuppressed groups, pregnant women, children that we didn't get to in the you know the main trials. Unfortunately, the way we do the big initial phase threes are usually adults who are not immunosuppressed. We want to make sure they're you know that it's safe and effective. Then we go to the other groups. So this will be studied. I know there are transplant studies being. Being, yeah, the, the problem yeah. is we don't have time, right? Because these folks are vulnerable, and right. so my my inclination is to vaccinate them. Yeah, as an as an at risk population. Uh, Tom Dietz asked about monoclonal antibody. I, I'm in my scrubs because I was just at our monoclonal antibody clinic uh, about an hour and a half ago. Um, the timing of the vaccination after someone had COVID and got early monoclonal. How long? Yeah. Again, 60, 90 days. Yeah, half-life is about 20 days for these monoclonals. So you want to get out three, four half-life. So we're talking just what you said. The, the official uh, guidance document from CDC says 90 days. Yeah. Um, what about uh, comparators of immunity from COVID versus immunity from the vaccine in terms of longevity? I've heard that the, the antibody response tends to wane a little faster in those with natural infection. Yeah, so people that were naturally infected and not vaccinated, um, we know there's waning of immunity. We know secondary infections can occur, but you know it's pretty unusual. Uh, it can happen, but it's certainly not common. We, remember, we've got 10 million people infected now. And we haven't we, we haven't seen a million in, you know second infections. It's a it's going to be pretty unusual, I think, R rare to uncommon. Um, but it does happen. So there is waning, probably over uh, three months. It, CDC likes to say that um, less than three months, you really don't see reinfections. That's why it's reasonable to consider waiting out to three months after in natural infection to get your vaccine. You can get it sooner if you want. Um, I think the duration for the vaccine, as we talked about a minute ago, Mike, is likely to be nine to 12 months, if not longer. So I think we're going to do better with these vaccines, just based on what I'm seeing. Three right. months out right now with the Again, as I said, the Moderna vaccine, there's very little drift, a little bit, but not much. So Sylvia uh, Stamperins uh, asks about the very old, if you will, the folks over the age of 85 or 90, who I'm pushing to the front of the line uh, once we get into phase one uh, C or whatever it is. Um, is there a preferred vaccine in that age group or is there a difference in data yeah, I, I really don't believe uh, there is, Mike. I think they're both highly effective. And I agree with you that, uh, in fact, we know now that 1B is going to include 75 and older. Um, these older, my mom's 88. I'm just dying for her to get the vaccine. I told her, whichever one you can get. Again, 
take what you can get. It, you, you may not, it's not, most of us are not going to have a, a menu option to pick, I yeah. think. So yeah. they're both highly effective for this group. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Paul Aaron's asked the question. I think we've already addressed it somewhat about the prime boost in a smaller dose. Uh, uh, I think we kind of addressed that. Uh, Jenny Town is asking about what turns off the bodies replicating the mRNA. Where does it go? Oh, yeah. So um, RNA is very uh, fragile and is easily degraded. Natural process in the body. We make we make messenger RNA when something's happening, but we don't want to keep making that protein for a long time, it gets, it gets shut down and degraded, enzymatic degradation, other pathways. So that's a normal body process. It goes away within hours to a day or two. Yeah, I learned that very early on in my lab experience in the 80s where we were doing mRNA experience and experiments and just a little bit of, of RNA destroyed the experiment. So it's very fragile. Um, let's see, Dwight Ferris is asking about... Uh, how to deal with the placebo arm. And we talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, uh, we talked about half dosing. Um, let's see what else we got here. Can uh, I, let me throw yeah. in while you're looking about the AstraZeneca, a lot of the half dosing comes from AZ. So there was a report that uh, giving a low dose prime, the half dose prime, and then the full dose boost uh, was great, gave greater, greater protection. And um, that's published in, in uh, Lancet. But there's a problem, and that is that the interval also was very different. The, um, they had intervals ranging from four weeks to 12 weeks. And we know in general with vaccines, the longer the rest between prime and boost, the stronger the response to the boost. So they varied not only the low-dose prime, but they also had longer intervals. It's very hard to sort out which of was more important there. I think we need more data. Yeah. Siobhan uh, Solano is asking about this is a tough one. Uh, multiple myeloma bone marrow transplant who received CAR T cells. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I bet that was a large group in the studies. Uh, yeah, um, unfortunately, of course, not not studied. Um, but again, not a not a replicating vector vaccine, not, not a live grid. viral vaccine, likely to likely to be safe and well tolerated. It's it's you know, are they going to respond? Well, you know, I mean, the, the, the transplant team would know best. There's no reason uh, to not give it, from my point of view, if you think, and we know they're at high risk for severe disease. So the, the upside is probably good. The downside is probably low. Makes sense yeah. to have a discussion. Yeah, Joel Ong is asking about, uh, is in a private practice and a lot of the staff are scared and don't want to take the vaccine and what should you see? I'll tell you what I've done and I think it's worked. And that is just compare the world in two scenarios. One, COVID continues like it is and there's no vaccine. When does it end? How many more people die? Versus COVID continuing, but then a vaccine and herd immunity happens. And this gets to a question that uh, I saw earlier and I don't have the name associated with it, but how long will it take in your estimation, but let's take out that, that, let's take on that second scenario. My best guess is maybe if, if this all rolls out and does well, certainly by maybe Thanksgiving, Christmas of next year, we can start thinking about a return towards normal. But if we don't have, a, if we didn't have vaccines, next Thanksgiving and Christmas would look at least as bad as what we have yeah. now, not to mention yeah. that almost a million people probably would have died by then. Yeah. And so when you weigh it out, this is a real, holiday miracle, whichever 
uh, religious background you may have. It's a miracle in the miracle season. And I think we should really embrace that, right? Oh, absolutely. I agree with all that. And I also think that, one, I'd love to be able to talk with that group of staff and just have a discussion, find out what's on your mind. What are you thinking? What are you concerned about? And then also to say, you know, you may feel like you don't need protection because you think, you know, you're young and healthy and we know younger people do better. But, but as an altruistic act and for your patients who are at high risk of death uh, or severe complications, that's it's a reason to get vaccinated, to, to protect those vulnerable people that is, you know, that you're caring for. We're not going to mandate this vaccine. It's, it's not a licensed vaccine. It's got this emergency use authorization. Um, but I do think, uh, particularly for those in healthcare, there's a bit of a social contract there um, that we really should think about to protect our, our patients. Okay, uh, we've hit the top of the hour. Um, we still have remarkably almost everybody who started with us. So I guess that's a backhanded compliment. Um, I'll, I'll just finish with two questions. We'll go a little bit over. Um, uh, one, is, one is the notion of, is it worth checking antibody afterwards, especially in somebody who didn't have any reaction at all to the vaccine? Is it, and if you would check antibody, which, which assay? Yeah. Um, no, I, it's not worth checking. A 95% protective vaccine does not need a post-vaccination uh, uh, test for immunogenicity. We know this is immunogenic. Um, and um, uh, if you were going to do it, you, you know, we, we, this comes up a lot in our trials, people wanting to unblind themselves, go out and get a test. But the problem is some of the tests like Roche and Abbott measure nucleoprotein. They don't measure spike antibody. They measure antibody. So you can't get just any test. It would have to be one that measures the uh, spike directed antibodies. And some of the tests don't even tell you what antibody it's, it's proprietary. They don't tell you what the, the antigen is in their test. So it's a little bit tricky business. I don't recommend it, Mike. You don't, you don't need to do that. I agree. And I'm going to finish with a question from our colleague, Victoria Johnson, um, who, who gets, uh, who we both know very well. And uh, just asking about her 91-year-old mom, we talked about this, but do older folks, I'll just reiterate the question, have the same 95% efficacy, do you think? I, I think it's, it's very high and probably not quite that. Remember, 95 is across all the age groups, and, and we do see a little drift down in the older groups, but it's still very, very high in the range of uh, probably high 80s, uh, something like that. So highly protective, um, and this is remarkable about these RNA vaccines. In, in, in fact, the antibody levels for the Moderna vaccine were as high and even higher in the older adults. It was striking in the phase uh, one, two data. So uh, Vicki, um, my mom's 88, uh, your mom, hopefully they'll both get the vaccine soon and, and I expect they'll have a very high level of protection. That's a very optimistic note to end on. Mark, this has been joyful. And uh, the time went by very fast as we thought it would. Uh, very, a uh, lot of information uh, that I think is spot on and very much needed now. And maybe so many questions are still needing to be asked. Maybe in several months, we might repeat this with uh, updates where we can answer some of the unknowns. Um, thanks to everybody, uh, especially the ISUSA staff and all the audience for hanging in there with us for the last hour. Um, a couple of uh, key points. Uh, this this uh, dialogue will be available on the ISUSA website. 
Uh, and it will be if you download it or you watch it online, there will be the opportunity for CME. Um, this has been, as I said, just a great uh, hour um, uh, that, that uh, I think we can uh, say that there's not only this uh, dialogue, I think that's very informative. There's a series of them that have been on ranging from epidemiology to populations to basic science that are there for anyone who would like to go scope it out on the www.isusa.org website. Um, and uh, we will conclude here. Mark, thanks again for a great job and, and always fun connecting with you, even if it's a longer distance than Atlanta going to New York. It was a great pleasure, Mike. Thank you. Okay, we'll sign off here. Thanks again, everybody.